Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We're going to get to our passage in a minute. It's going to be from Isaiah 41. But I want to introduce um, what I want to talk to you about this morning with this reality. There are two dangers that Christians and churches and pastors and seminaries and denominations and all of us uh, are always prone to fall into when it comes to what we call sanctification. Okay, so first big, day, uh, first big word of the day, kids. Who knows what sanctification means? 12 and under, anybody? <laughs> 15 and under. Where? Oh, there's a couple of hands. Okay, sorry. Good, let's go with you, yeah. What'd you say? Cleansing. Yeah, that's awful darn appropriate. What would you say? Yeah, so being washed. So what are, that's part of what it means, and it also means our obedience. Our obedience to God. Sanctification means us becoming more and more like Jesus in our life, really. Okay? So there's two big errors that Christians all the way back from the beginning have tended to fall into when it comes to sanctification. All right? The one danger is to, well, <laughs> let me give you another big word. It's to fall into the ditch of antinomianism. I know all you eight-year-olds know what that word means. Antinomianism means no law. Okay, so we're talking about God's law. So all through the history of the church, some people have thought, okay, that since we're saved by the grace of God, right? We're saved by the grace of God, right? We don't have to earn it. Therefore, we can do whatever we want. And I say this goes all the way back to the beginning because the apostles deal with that very idea all through the New Testament. So for example, in Jude, little book of Jude, Jude warns us against men who teach that the grace of God, he says, they twist the grace of God into licentiousness. All right, there's another big word. What is licentiousness? It means you can do whatever you want to do. Okay? So they take the grace of God and they say, oh, the grace of God means we can do whatever we want to do. And, and Jude says these men are inside the church. They snuck in secretly, he says. And the apostle Paul deals with the same thing in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? You know, the more sin, the more grace you get, so go for it with the sin. That's what he's addressing. People really taught that in the New Testament early church, and they certainly still teach it today. 
So that's the one side, the one ditch that we always tend to gravitate towards sometimes is antinomianism. The other ditch is legalism, right? Legalism means, yeah, God has given me his law, commanded me to obey him, and I will make myself acceptable to him. I will make myself right with him. If I obey, I earn merit with him by doing all these good things. And oftentimes, the good things that we try to do as legalists are things that we made up ourselves. <laughs> you know, because those are actually doable. So the Apostle Paul deals with this in Colossians chapter two. Listen to this. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? See, they're made up. He says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. There's this whole set of rules that look, wow, that guy is really spiritual. But number one, they're man-made. Number two, they don't actually do anything to help you actually obey God, okay? So those are the ditches, right? Antinomianism, forget about obeying God, I don't need to, I'm saved by grace, and legalism, I'm gonna make up even more commands that, by which I can present myself to God. Now, which one is the most prevalent today? Antinomianism or legalism? What'd you say? Yes. Precisely. They both are because they really are not opposites at all. Actually, they're two sides of the same coin. They are both simply, <laughs> Dan, the alternating current of the fallen human heart. They're the alternating current of the fallen human heart. They're the things that we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between constantly. Our fallen hearts are hardwired to function on this alternating cycle between antinomianism and legalism. I mean, you can see this through periods of history, of reaction and, and reaction, you know, to one or the other, but really what you see is even in a day, you'll see yourself alternating back between these two things. Eh, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to worry about that. Oh man, that makes me feel really bad. I know, I'll not taste, I'll not touch, I'll not look, I'll not handle, I'll do something, I'll whatever. No value against fleshly indulgence. We flip back and forth between these all the time. The cycle repeats itself endlessly unless the grace of God and the spirit of God and the commands of God, the word of God, step in and start to destroy both of them. Now, how, how does God break that cycle? 
of flipping back and forth between antinomianism and legalism. Let me, before we get to our text, let me just give you one more verse, all right? That will give us kind of a paradigm for what we're gonna look at in a second. And this is Galatians 5, 6. In Galatians 5, 6, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Now, what does that mean? Think about both parts of that equation, right? What is faith? What is faith? Do you have faith? Well, what is it? Real faith knows what God has said, believes, gives like, yes, I agree that what God said is true, okay? But it's more than that. Real faith not only assents to the truth of God's promises and his word, but it receives and rests on Christ. It actually takes it seriously. All of my life depends on this. That's what faith is. You have faith when you have a taste for the excellence and beauty of God's truth. Not just the facts of it, but the excellence and the beauty. And you joyfully embrace and accept it. All of it. That's faith. What is love? What is love? We just got through Pride Month and they wanted to tell us what love is. You know, love is love. Well, that doesn't make any sense. What is love? God is love, so God gets to tell us what love is. And one of the things that God says love is, is this. So Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He says in Galatians, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is love? Love is obeying the law of God. L love to God is obeying all the commands that God gives us concerning him and love to neighbor is obeying all the commands that God gives us concerning our love for one another. It's the whole law. It's obedience to the law, that's what love is. We don't get to make it up and brush aside all kinds of perversion and wickedness in the name of love. God tells us what love is, it's obedience to the law. And so, faith is accepting and embracing and absolutely trusting the promises of God, that's what faith is, and love is following and observing and obeying the commands of God. And so the main point of Galatians 5, 6 is that obedience, love, obedience, flows from what? Faith. Obeying God is the result of trusting God. Obeying God is a result of trusting God. Faith works through love. Now the immediate question we're gonna ask then is, well, how does that work? How does that work? He says faith works through love, how? 
how does faith work to produce obedience to God? Is it some kind of let go and let God passive magic thing that just happens? Just stop doing anything, lean back, and it's just like automatic. Is that how it works? Is that what the Bible says? No. Is there something I need to do to have a growing obedience that flows from a growing faith? Yes. How does that work? How does faith work in order to produce obedience? In practical terms, the answer is that in order for faith to be working through love, right? In order for your trust in God to flow out into obedience to God, you have to use God's promises in order to obey his commands. You have to use his promises in order to obey his commands. I wanna show you how that works and what that looks like from a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 41. I'm gonna read verses one to 13. We're really gonna focus on verse 10. I wanna kinda of set the stage for you. So follow along as I read Isaiah 41, starting in verse one. This is God's word, and every single little word of it is eternally true. Let's, let's read. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. 
It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. This is the word of the Lord. The verse I want us to focus on in all of that is verse 10. Isaiah 41, verse 10. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this verse has two commands and five promises that support those commands, okay? What are the two commands? Do you see them? Anybody? Fear not, and what? Be not dismayed. Those are commands of God for for you. Fear not, be not dismayed. He commands you not to be afraid. He commands you not to give in to despair or distress or worry or anxiety. Now think about that because God is doing something here that we recoil against. (laughs) So first of all, he's commanding us, right? And we don't like to be commanded by anybody. So number one. Number two, he's commanding us to what? To change our feelings. God is commanding us not to be afraid, not to be dismayed. Now, how do you respond to that? How do you process that? Because most of us constantly think and hear that this is the one thing we can't do. We can't change how we feel. What do you mean? How can God command me to feel one way and not another? How can I control my feelings? How can I control and change my emotions? Especially fear. Because fear, right? You know what they say about fear? It comes from our lizard brain. You ever heard that? It's stupid. Because it assumes we all used to be lizards. (laughs) But it It comes from this like deep primal place, the fight or flight or freeze kind of thing, you know? And it's purely chemical. It's like nothing you actually have control over. How in the world is God telling us not to be afraid? It's the one thing I have no control over. It just happens. How can I change a command? How can I obey a, a command to change the way I feel? Now, the fact is, Uh, and we have no time for this, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens of places in the Bible where God commands us to change how we feel. We're gonna see a couple of them in Philippians. You know, like rejoice, always. You think that doesn't mean something about your feelings? Or be anxious for nothing. Okay? God does this all the time. Now, let's just take this one command to fear not. All right? Is this a fluke? Is this a, you know, it must be that ESV. No. Check it. (laughs) You'll see. This is all over. This is all over Isaiah. 
Let's just, just think about Isaiah for just a second. Isaiah 35, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Anyone have an anxious heart? This is God's word to you, be strong, fear not. We saw one in, uh, another one in Isaiah 41, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand, it is I who say to you, fear not. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you, fear not. Isaiah 44, eight, fear not, nor be afraid. Jesus himself says this kind of thing all the time. Our Lord Jesus. Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And, are not, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He says in Luke 12, fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So apparently, what? We must be fearful people. Right? God knows us. So he says to us over and over and over again, fear not, fear not, fear not. So does God command us to feel one way and not another? You better believe he does. He commands us to not be afraid. Now what is God like? When God gives us commands like this, um, is he standing aloof, you know, up in the heavens, casting down commands to us the, and giving us no help to obey them? Is that the kind of God we have? He knows our frame. He knows that we are just dust, weak, fearful, powerless on our own. And so he doesn't just give us commands. He is very kind to weak and fearful people like us. He stoops down and he gives us reasons not to be afraid. Really good reasons not to be afraid. He gives you promises that will enable you to obey him if you'll believe him. The, the hope of you obeying him is you believing him. And he doesn't just give you one promise. One promise would be plenty. We're talking about God whose words are always true. One promise would be great, but he doesn't give us one, he gives us five. Five promises, right here. Here they are, in verse 10. Fear not, that's the command, why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, why? Number two, for I am your God. Number three, I will strengthen you. Number four, I will help you. And number five, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
So you can obey God's commands to fear not, face all the circumstances, all the disappointments, all the trials, and think about the life of our church. There are lots of circumstances and trials right now going on. God knows every one of them. And you can face all of that with peace, joy. How? Why? Because God has promised to be with you. He has promised to be your God. He has promised to strengthen you. He's promised to help you. He's promised to uphold you, to uphold you with his righteous right hand. When God commands you, fear not, be not dismayed, he does not expect you to obey on your own. You can't. With his command, he gives promises. And you have to use the promises in order to obey the commands. These things aren't just random jumbles of words. He's giving you commands and he's giving you these promises for a reason. Take them, use them. I am with you, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you. You can obey his commands because of his rich promises. The key to obeying these commands, the key to overcoming your fears is to rest on the unshakable foundation of the promises of God. And not just to rest on them, but to use them. To use them. To wield them like a sword against your unbelief. To wield them like a sword against your fear. God didn't give you these promises just to lay here on the page. He gave you the promises for you to pick up and to use. So when God commands you to be free from fear, when your children leave home, when you go to the doctor for that dreaded test that you don't really want to go to the doctor for, you know? When you face overwhelming temptation, when you put your money in the offering plate for the church, when you read the news, whatever it is that causes you fear, when you're laying up at night wondering if the food is rotting in the refrigerator, that's what I did last night. <laughs> the power went out. Last night, I'm supposed to be done with that. When God calls you to have peace in the face of difficult circumstances, he doesn't leave you powerless to obey. What kind of God would that be? He gives you his rich and precious promises. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Use them. 
in the moment of your fear, use his promises to obey the command. This is how God's word works. This is what he wants us to do with it. Let your faith work through love. You gotta use it. Now, God is very kind. <laughs> he gives us commands, right? And his commands are not burdensome. They're sweet. They're for our good. It's good for you not to be afraid and to not be dismayed. Thank God for that command. But he doesn't just give us commands, he gives us promises that we use in order to obey the command. Incredibly sweet. He pours them on richly, but he does more than that. He doesn't just give us his promises, he gives us himself. Himself. His promises are so amazing, so enriching, so helpful, so powerful, because he's the one who makes them. I could make you all kinds of promises. Don't bank on those. <laughs> but God's promises you can bank on because he's the one who makes them. Well, what do I mean? Uh, right here in Isaiah 41, God tells us who he is. We get an idea of who God is by what he says right here. And we come face to face with his greatness, his promises amaze us and strengthen us all the more. So quickly, number one, first of all, God is the righteous judge. The God making these promises is the righteous judge. Verse one, God says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. This is God calling all the nations of the earth, the peoples, together to stand before his judgment seat. He says, strengthen yourself. You're gonna come and you're gonna to talk to me and I'm going to judge you. The God who makes the promises of verse 10 is the great judge of all the earth. Nothing escapes his notice. He is the one who calls all the nations to account. He is not the one on trial, they are on trial. He is the great judge who will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. That is the God who promises to be with you. To be with you, to be with you. The judge of all the earth. Second, God is the almighty ruler of all rulers. Verse two. In verse two, Isaiah asks the question, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. Isaiah, we know from the rest of the book, is talking about a, a mighty king named Cyrus the Great, the Persian. Cyrus was one of the most powerful men 
the world has ever known. And God used Cyrus to do exactly what God wanted Cyrus to do. You could read about that in the Old Testament. But what's the point? God is the one who uses not just little people, but great people like Cyrus to do whatever he wants. He is the almighty ruler of all rulers, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ruler of rulers, has promised to be your God. Nothing that happens among the great and mighty is out of God's hand. And he is your God. He's promised to be your God. Third, he's the eternal creator. Look at verse four. God says, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first. And with the last, I am he. God, from before the beginning, called it all, right? Or de decreed it all, designed it all, planned it all, created it all. He is the eternal creator. He is the first, the absolute reality beyond and behind all other reality. And he will be there at the last when everything has been accomplished according to his plan. That is the God who says to you, I will strengthen you, I will help you. <laughs> nothing, is, nothing is a problem for him. And last, fourth, he is the sovereign, gracious savior. Look at verses eight and nine. God says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. God is the one who chooses by his own authority, people to be his own. He is the one who stoops down to make sinners, sinners like you and me and Abraham, to make sinners like us his friend. <laughs> He's your friend. He is the one who calls his people from the corners of the earth. He says, you're mine. I've chosen you. I have not cast you off and I will not cast you off. That is the God who promises to uphold you with his righteous right hand. That God makes these amazing promises to you. The promises are amazing the fact that God is the one making them. The righteous judge of all the earth, the almighty ruler of all rulers, the eternal creator, the sovereign gracious savior, that God says to you, if you'll believe him, he says, I am with you, I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
and then come his commands, right? Therefore, because I'm the righteous judge, the king of kings, the eternal creator, the sovereign savior, because I'm with you, I'm your God, I will strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you, therefore what? What? Do not be afraid. None of this has anything to do with you. You're not looking inward to find the strength. It's God. Who he is, what he has said, what he's promised. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are facing, again, hard things I know, whatever you will face that we haven't seen yet, there will be hard things. God is with you. He's by your side. He is with you. Think of that. He is your God. He is over you. He will strengthen you. He's inside you. He will help you. He's all around you to protect you. He will uphold you. He's underneath you. Therefore, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Hope in God. Trust Him. Take refuge in Him. Worship Him. He is great and glorious and magnificent and good. He is your God. He's given you His Word. Now use His promises to obey His commands. That is our only hope. It's wonderful to memorize the Bible, to, to, as we say, hide it in your heart. He didn't give it to us to hide in our hearts. You know, and just sit there. He gave it to us to use. You can have all kinds of words of God hidden in your heart and be totally gripped by fear or anxiety or greed or lust or whatever. You got to use it. It's not a rabbit foot that you put in your pocket and therefore somehow you got to use it. Grab hold of the hilt of this sword. It's, it's sharper than any other sword. The word of God. Grab a hold of it. Wield these promises against all of your fear and all of your unbelief. Wield it against all the lies of the devil. Wield it against your own hardness and coldness of heart. Let your love for God be fueled and motivated and enabled by your faith and the promises and character of God. Or not. Or not.
Because you can just say, no. Not going to do it. I like my fear. I, I like the darkness of that. Somehow, it gives me something to live for. I don't know why we do this. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us by his glory and excellence. He's given us great and magnificent promises. So that by them we might escape the corruption that is in the world because of our lust. Okay? This is Peter. Use the promises. Or if you don't, you will go, just go on the way you are. Why would you want to do that? Hardness of heart, pride, unbelief, coldness, fear, wrapped up, controlled by anxiety. Why would you want to do that? God's promise to fear not is such a good pro uh, command. His command to fear not is such a good command. So kind. And the true and living God is able to rescue you from your blindness and your sin if you'll humble yourself. Come to him in faith through his son Jesus Christ who, who is willing and able. He stands crucified for you. Christ Jesus is crucified for you if you'll come and trust him. Let's pray. Dear Father, please help us. We are, we are so fearful and so weak and afraid and anxious and seemingly so often powerless, but we are not powerless. Give us faith, Lord, to use your promises. Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.